Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 3 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Oh my, Wellington. Uh, uh, achoo! I don't think I've seen quite so many dusty archives down here before. Well, do have a care with them, Eliza. These particular files date back to the very beginning of the ministry. Don't worry. I'll take as much care with them as those vases from El Dorado. Do stop trying to bait me, Eliza. I think you have come far since those dark times. Hmm. Looks like the secrets of the first director and some intriguing woman. I dare say such things don't interest you. Give me a moment and I'll fetch some white gloves to turn the pages with. Professor Source is quite the mystery man. Foothold by Paul K. Ellis Written and read by the author Summer, 1840 London, England When a member of Parliament can get his throat cut in his sleep, it is a sign that firmer hands are required on the wheel of the empire, Lord Roderick Dale, Duke of Monmouth, exclaimed, punctuating the sentiment by slamming his brass hand on the dinner table. Silverware danced and crystal glasses sang in counterpoint. The poured wine and the dinner guest jumped at Dale's display. He was a big, broad-shouldered man, older than most in the room and easily the most imposing. Candlelight glinted off the brass encasing his right forearm and hand. His right eye had been replaced by a clockwork ocular, held in place by a tooled leather strap. Rowan Clayworth removed his pince-knees glasses and discreetly wiped away the wine with a soft cloth. The rail-thin twenty-two-year-old was the youngest doctoral candidate to come from Oxford's new college of St. Mary. While his doctoral thesis had drawn sharp rebuke, he landed the plum curator position for Lord Dale's vast collection of antiquities. A standing invitation to the Etheridge Consortium's bi-weekly dinner at the House of Dale was merely a benefit, wine shower notwithstanding. Now, now, that will be enough of that, said a sweet voice laced with reason and steel. Lady Madeline Dale came into the dining room. What is the fuss about, and why is my tablecloth spotted with wine? Apologies, my dear. Dale stood. It appears Lord William Russell was murdered. No, I visited him just last week. Who would want to harm such a sweet old man? His valet, Dale said. The imbecile was completely addled from laudum use, and kept muttering, Where the water? And the lady has said, So it shall be. The police cannot get anything else out of him. Dreadful, she said. Do tell us some happier news to go with dinner. I've received ansible dispatches from the Far East, and it seems Lord Palmerstone's orders have been heeded after all. Commodore Brimmer is undertaking preparations to secure compensation for our interests, and Lord Napier reports that he is confident the matter will be settled by the end of the month, Dale said. Madeline arched an eyebrow and put one hand on her hip. That is not happy news. That is business. No business at the table, she said, and extended her other hand towards Dale. Now, give me those reports. Laughter ensued, and Dale surrendered the dispatches. 
Clayworth covertly watched the young woman. Frowning with concentration, she tucked an errant curl of ebony hair behind an ear in a gesture so artful that it quite took his breath away. He had met her on his second day of employment. It had been a brief introduction, but the feel of her small, warm hand in his lingered. By the fifth day he was completely smitten. He took great pains to hide his affections. They were of an age, to be sure. However, he was certain Lord Dale would not approve of any untitled adventurers in the family. Still, from time to time, he noticed her appraising him. He didn't dream of catching her at it, preferring to bask in the warm glow of her affections from afar. "'Are we certain this redress is necessary?' she said. "'If the Emperor weren't so mad for silver, I'd say no,' Dale replied. "'As it stands, the Son of Heaven and Lord of ten thousand years destroyed over two million pounds sterling of our merchandise, which, granted, wouldn't be an issue if we'd received our promised compensation.' Dale paused. "'Even a concern as mighty as the East India Company cannot absorb that massive a loss.' The sun never sets on the British Empire, and the Empire runs on the EIC. Madeline sighed and handed the dispatches to a maid while Dale held her chair. She sat, picked up the small crystal bell beside her place setting, and rang it. Dinner was served. After dinner, Madeline whispered, Study in Clayworth's ear her fingers trailing across the back of his hand and twining around his little finger before pulling free. He tugged at his collar, then slipped away from his colleagues and into the study. The gas lamps were turned low, creating dim pools of light in the wash of darkness. He softly called, Madeline? Lady Dale, if you please, Lord Dale said from the shadows behind the desk. A small wooden box set in the center of the desktop. Set! Clayworth sat in the red leather chair before the desk. "'My Madeline pushes the boundaries,' Dale leaned back in his chair. "'It is my own fault, of course. I encourage her. Still, I feel that certain limits have been reached.' Clayworth swallowed. "'Please, forgive my impertinence. I quite understand, me lord.' "'I don't believe you do. But it's time you learned. Do you believe every man should be empowered to control his life?' Dale asked. Clayworth blinked. Certainly, my lord. I believe it is incumbent on him to try, regardless. So do I. Hence why I collect such objects that warrant your attention. And Dale prized the lid of the wooden box open. Objects like this. A granite disc, weathered with age and measuring about four inches in diameter, lay on the crushed velvet lining. Etched on its face was a winged creature, the beast's tentacles flung to the eight principal winds of the compass. Dale beckoned Clayworth to pick it up. The artifact was heavier than it appeared, and seemed to pulsate, filling his head with a strange buzzing, whispers that either taunted or urged him. He turned the disc over. On the obverse appeared twelve lines of runes. The disc's song was beginning to unnerve him, so he carefully returned it. "'What do you make of it?' Dale asked. "'It is a Futhark variant, almost certainly,' Clayworth replied." The runic inscription on the obverse isn't any dialect I recognize, but I can tell that it is very early, proto-Germanic or perhaps Celtic. What is it? That is for you to discover, Dale said. I have availed myself of a great and awesome power. The cost was high, he said, gesturing to his ocular and prosthetic arm. But it was necessary 
to save my twin sister's life. I beg your pardon, who? Clayworth asked. My twin sister, Lady Madeline, Dale answered. Clayworth blanched. I'm sorry, my lord. I would not offend you for the world. However, I believed her to be your daughter. Our family estate was built on a lake shore, Dale began. A lake that glowed. After one particular rainy season, the lake flooded into subterranean waterways and began to wash away at the foundation. During one such storm, lightning struck our home with such force that it split it in twain, and half, or half, slid into the lake's deepest end. We were trapped in the wreckage and pulled to the bottom. It was there I saw it, radiant in the murk. Dale pointed to the disk. I pulled free from the wreckage and grabbed it in my right hand. Using its light, I found my beloved Madeline, trapped on the bottom, dead. Struck with inconsolable rage, I cried out. Water poured into my lungs. My right side erupted in fiery pain. The next I knew, we were ashore, and she was whole. I arrested Madeline from Karen's grasp, but the cost, my eye ruined, my arm useless, and my youth gone. Dale focused his ocular on Clayworth. I must know all the powers of the disk and bend them to my purpose. There are times when I feel I know how to summon the powers of this device, as if it instructs me on its use. Other times, I dread touching it. He paused, considering the man before him. I read your thesis, my boy. That's why I hired you. Clayworth's breath caught in his throat as sweat prickled against his skin. They mocked your supposition that these ancient artifacts have properties we cannot understand. Prove them wrong. Clayworth swallowed, clearing his throat. How may I be of service? Dale handed him a thin parchment and a charcoal stylus. Make a rubbing of the disk. Speak of it to no one, and guard that parchment with your life. Use your thesis contacts and find answers. Help me understand what happened that night, and what it cost me. Truly. Clayworth nodded and completed his task, carefully folding the paper and placing it in his coat pocket. Go, Dale said, looking weary. Clayworth bowed and backed out, closing the door. No sooner had the latch clicked shut than he felt her warm hand in his, her soft lips, on his cheek. Please, my lady, he whispered. Lord Dale has made certain things very clear. My brother is many things, Madeline said, but never my keeper. If you have no desire for me, then go. Clayworth did not move. She drew close, her lips brushing his, her hands wrapping around the back of his neck. He felt a cold chill at the base of his skull. Pain lanced through him from crown to soul, and he collapsed, the world shrouded in a fog of agony. Pain overtook him, drawing its curtain across his consciousness. Dale stormed into his study, his ocular clicking and whirling. Calm down, Roderick. If you snap the spindle, it will mean an eye patch for at least a week until a replacement can be cast, Madeline said from her seat in his leather chair. She had wrapped herself in a purple velvet dressing gown, the cuff and hems replete with gold embroidery, and perched in Dale's chair sideways, her legs over one arm and her back against the other. She was balancing a cup of tea in her lap and taking a small, contented sip. Dear sister, I need that boy focused if I am ever to be returned to myself. He is clever. 
You will find a way to unlock this cage I am in. You are a blissful distraction, but a distraction nonetheless. How is our young Mr. Clayworth? she asked, sipping her tea. He is exhibiting symptoms consistent with being stunned by a beholder. I had one of the staff take him home. What did you do to him? Nothing, she protested, beyond kissing him. Kissing him? Your behavior is unseemly. Stop complaining, she replied. I never neglected you, even at your vilest. Brass knuckles thudded against the desktop. I cannot bear to think of you with him. She rolled her eyes and snapped. Then stop thinking about it. You know this is necessary. I know no such thing, Madeline sighed. I need him. What? Why? Dale cried. Because he is mine, Madeline answered, her smile curling into her brother's heart. No, Dale's face took on a crafty look. You forget. I stopped you once. And how did that turn out for you? Has it been all you envisioned it would be? Dale slammed his fist on the desk's corner, shattering the glass top and splintering the wood. No, I forbid you to see him again. Forbid? Madeline unwound from the chair and set the teacup amid the broken wreckage on the desk. You forbid me. She turned her back on him and walked towards the door. I, that is, perhaps it was a poor choice of words. She stopped in the doorway and, placing a hand on the frame, looked over her shoulder at him. Make better choices, brother, dear. Morning sunlight cast a dappled pattern beneath the trees. Clayworth waited patiently, seated on a bench just off the walkway. He closed his eyes and felt the warm sun on his face. He could feel her watching and opened his eyes. Madeline leaned over and kissed him. It had been several weeks since the dinner party. He awoke in bed with no memory of how he had gotten there. At work, Dale scolded him on the dangers of drinking too much, and Clayworth almost believed him until he saw Madeline smile. Since then, they lived for stolen moments like this one. Have you been here long? Madeline asked. She smelled of roses. Oh, no. I was passing the time watching the variable geometric shapes the shadows of leaves make. Your eyes were closed. I was visualizing a theory. Madeline laughed, the crystal sound carrying on the wind. She sat beside him and took his hand. Her ring rubbed up against his knuckle. A small dragon wrapped around her finger, clutching a large white sapphire in its claws. He took her hand in his and studied the ring, taking particular note of the details. She noticed his gaze and held his hand tighter. It's not going to bite, Rowan. I told you. I had been seeing the guest out into the cool evening, and, well, you know how long silver can stay cold. I must have pushed the band behind your ear. Given that I had your heart racing at the time, she said with a wicked grin, the sudden drop in temperature caused you to pass out. He kissed her. He no longer cared what had happened. After a moment, she drew back. I suppose we could conduct an experiment to prove your theory, Clayworth said. We would need to run it several times in order to be certain. Madeline sighed. Roderick wouldn't stand for it. Never mind that you would have a hard time finding gainful employment any time soon. 
Clayworth grimaced. She put her head on his shoulder and traced on the back of his hand with her forefinger. "'What will you be working on today?' she asked. "'Roderick's disc,' he bristled slightly. "'I need to make progress. I sometimes feel he is holding it in reserve to use as an excuse to sack me.' "'That's not the case, beloved. If you want it, you would be on the street now,' Madeline said. "'He is used to having me all to himself. Give him time. He will come around.' Sir, the butler spoke gently from the doorway of Clayworth's workshop. There are some gentlemen here insisting to see Lord and Lady Dale. They will not leave, sir. One of them claims to be an inspector. Clayworth frowned. Normally the man would have already dealt with the situation, so this must be serious. Very well, Barrymore. Thank you, Clayworth said. Less than five minutes later, he entered the foyer and found two men waiting for him. "'Gentlemen, I am Rowan Clayworth, curator for the Etheridge Consortium. May I be of some assistance?' "'Inspector John Tedman,' the smaller of the two men replied. "'We are here on direct orders of Sir Robert Peel. We would like to speak with Lady Dale straightway.' "'May I ask to what it pertains?' "'You may not,' the other replied. "'Official police business!' Clayworth turned to him. "'And you are?' "'Who I am don't concern you, boy. "'Now run and fetch Lady Dale. "'His lordship, too, if and he's on the premises.' "'Clayworth turned back to Tedman. "'This is one of yours?' "'I am afraid so. "'Mr. Clayworth, Sergeant Major Peter Atkins, "'formerly of Her Majesty's 13th Regiment of Light Dragoons.' "'Sergeant Major,' Clayworth said, "'bellowing their names will not make them appear. "'Now, if you have a card,' I will happily give it to them. Atkins walked over and stood nose to nose with Clayworth. Do that, boy! He turned and stalked to the front door, jerking it open and disappearing into the sunlight. Sir, Tedman said, handing his card to Clayworth, please have them contact me. Lady Dale was one of the last people to see Lord Russell alive. We need her help. Clayworth nodded. The conversation, brief as it was, continued to haunt him for the day, his studies of the ancient ruins distracted by the inspector's visit. Madeline had admitted to seeing him only just last week, but was she truly the last to see Lord Russell alive? He glanced at the clock and realized that he had been staring at the same line of ruins for nearly an hour. Perhaps a momentary distraction was in order. Clayworth retired to a corner of the house he was always assured a bit of peace, the consortium's library. The large room was windowless, with entrances from the hall proper and the adjoining solarium. Perhaps it would have been assumed this was the place for him to carry out his work, but the trickling of the library's decorative fountain assured proper research would be hard to accomplish. He glanced over to the far wall at the ornate, burbling, punch-bowl-sized basin and shook his head. He was certain its presence and the humidity it contributed to did the books no favors. Madeline, however, had insisted on it. She was hard to deny. Just over the constant murmur of the fountain, Clayworth heard voices from the solarium. The pocket doors separating the two rooms were slightly ajar. He went to close them, but froze upon hearing Madeline's voice. When did she get back? So, my captain, have you been practicing? Clayworth felt a twinge of guilt, but jealousy overrode such concerns. He peered through the gap in the doors. Madeline was in her purple velvet dressing gown. 
Her back was to him, and she was speaking with a very young man. Cold tentacles slithered around Clayworth's heart. "'I have, milady. I practice daily, twice on some days.' The young man sketched a clumsy bow, nearly losing his black crepe cap. Bile rose in Clayworth's throat when the young man kissed her hand. "'Have you been following the instructions passed to you through Mr. Smith?' "'Yes. I hold him in the highest regard, as I do you.' The boy's stare was wide and vacant. "'He speaks highly of you, which pleases me.' Madeline paused. "'Are you continuing to have the headaches?' "'Yes, my lady, but I only take laudanum in the doses you command.' "'Very good.' The boy shifted, and Clayworth saw pistol grips protruding from the frayed pockets of his trousers. "'Who was this cad?' "'You must take care in delivering our message, my captain. "'Remember, she is summer court, and will trick you if you are not steadfast.' "'I am your rook, my lady,' he declared. She smiled. "'Kneel, then.' The boy fell to one knee with a thud. Madeline drew a sword from her robe. The workmanship on the blade was rare and fine, middle fifth century as far as Clayworth could tell. Madeline proceeded to dub the boy. The sunlight in the room grew brighter. "'Rise, Knight Captain Oxonian of young England. Go, true knight, and bring the darkness to those who would punish our fire.' She put her fingers under his upturned chin and placed a chaste, sisterly kiss on his cheek. Oxanian jumped to his feet, his eyes shining. "'So the lady has said, so it shall be!' "'So the lady has said, so it shall be!' Clayworth thought quickly. Without another word, the boy backed away, bowed, and left through the garden door. The light faded, and Clayworth blinked. When his vision cleared, there was no sign of Madeline. The library door behind him closed. A faint scent of roses tickled his nose. Looking for someone? He sighed and turned to find Madeline, arms crossed and foot tapping. I am sorry. I heard you and that boy, and I'm afraid I became jealous. Rowan, she said sternly. What am I to do with you? She planted a lingering kiss on his lips. Never eavesdrop. It's a sign of low character. She hugged him, then stepped back. Young Edward has a taste for high melodrama. He fancies himself the bravo of Venice. He's a simple boy, and given to fits. Roderick and I employ him as a messenger, but it takes a great deal of coaxing to get him to understand his job. Clayworth let his breath out. I saw the guns and became concerned. Oh, those, she said. I argued against that purchase for some time. "'But he had to have them, so I negotiated. "'He could have the guns, but he could only purchase bullets from me.' "'She giggled. "'I seemed to be constantly out of stock.' "'Clayworth felt a burn rise in his cheeks. "'I am so sorry. I really do not know what came over me.' "'Apology accepted,' she said, wrapping her arms around his neck. "'I am ever so fond of a man who can admit his mistakes.' As she brushed his lips with hers a second time, he tensed. "'Rowan, dear, Roderick isn't coming in until after lunch, and Barrymore is at the market.' She pulled back and looked him in the eye. "'Or is there something else?' "'I just remembered,' Clayworth began. "'I do have an appointment later this morning. I am researching the disc for Lord Dale.' She arched an eyebrow. "'I see. And when did you set this appointment?' 
just this morning. Oh, and this, Clayworth said, rummaging around in his coat pocket. He produced Tedman's card and handed it to Madeline. An inspector stopped by this morning while you and Lord Dale were out. He asked me to have you call on him at your earliest convenience regarding Lord Russell's murder. He had some oaf with him that was so boorish I almost blocked the entire incident from my mind. She read the card, frowned, and then placed it on a nearby end table. She turned a calculating gaze on him and stepped around him. After pulling the pocket doors closed, she turned to face him. Using my brother and this inspector as an excuse is feeble justification for your shocking lack of attention, she said, her gaze sharp and hungry. Madeline, Clayworth began, it's not that, well, you understand that I, um, she placed one small, perfect finger to his lips. Beloved, punctuality is only for those that do not understand the value in making others wait. The anticipation can be, she smiled wickedly. Stimulating. The lock on the pocket doors clicked shut. She unknotted the tie on her robe and stepped out of it, allowing her clothes to fall to the floor. Her skin was unfashionably tanned all over. He said nothing, reaching for her. She grabbed him and drew him close, kissing him with fervent hunger. Are you stimulated, beloved? She whispered, pulling him to the floor. The shop had seen better days. The windows were dirty and the sign covered with mold. Miggins' antiquities was barely visible. Clayworth entered the shop, his eyes adjusting to the gloom. Motes of dust danced in the air, showering down from a maze of stacked boxes. This, this is, is the place, place, he thought to himself, checking the card he had picked up from the British Museum. Apparently, this Professor Culpepper Source had earned a reputation for being able to crack mysteries. So... Why in my studies did I never hear of this man? Hello, he called out, shifting his cane and bag to one hand. A moment, a voice replied from the back. Let me come and get you. A portly man with brilliant eyes and inherent affability rounded a nearby stack of documents and what appeared to be assorted statues and amulets and shook Clayworth's hand. Mr. Rowan Clayworth, I was expecting you a good deal earlier. Yes, Clayworth said, feeling a touch of color rise in his cheeks. Something uh, rather pressing came up. Well, no matter, Source chuckled. Come and have a cuppa. Clayworth followed the professor around the piled merchandise and, it seemed with each step, new towers of notes. If you don't mind my saying, Professor Source, but you are in desperate need of a curator, or perhaps an archivist. The man nodded in reply. Oh, yes, well, we here at... And he paused, as if he were trying to remember something, then spoke quickly. Megan's antiquities are still finding our feet. An archivist is certainly a priority for us. He stepped through a curtained doorway that led into the back of the store. Welcome to Alexandria, Source said. The back room had high, vaulted ceilings, with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder on every wall. Work tables were scattered about the area and covered in either documents, maps, or machinery. A large card catalog dominated the center of the room. I say, Professor, this is magnificent. It's a labor of love, Source said, his smile wide. Come, it's tea time. Clayworth followed him to one of the work tables. Source had a small gas jet set up to heat a copper-bottomed teapot, 
His eyes were still looking back and forth to all the various ancient scrolls and texts as source poured. In between bites of biscuit, Clayworth attempted to find the section on ancient Celtic. Over by the orrery, Mr. Clayworth, Source said, a twinkle in his eye. You did mention you had questions of an artifact that had ancient Celtic origins, yes? Clayworth placed the rubbing of the disc before the professor. Oh, my, Source said, just before taking a sip of tea. Are the runes futak or cume variant on the obvious aspect? No, wait, he said, putting on his glasses and leaning forward. That is Proto-Indo-European ideography. Where did you find this? Is it inscribed on stone or bronze? Stone, Clayworth replied, finishing his cup. He stood and began setting up on a table near the shelves Source had indicated earlier. It never occurred to me the ruins were a purely ideographic construct. I've been trying to reconcile them into a language system. They seemed too regular. Ghastly-looking beastie, isn't it? Source said, pulling at his chin. From the sound of it, he was now focused on the creature. Obviously a manifestation of one of the lords of chaos. Clayworth looked on with amused disbelief. A manifestation of one of the lords of chaos? Just like that? It is possible that I read across a reference in Tarkatatin Yerpen. By Agatharchides the Greek? Those books were thought lost. Some survive if one knows where to look, Source said. I hand-copied the Codex of the Tribes of Gaul and Germania a number of years ago. I feel this lost Celtic Codex will prove invaluable now. There are forty-nine books, and you found a new reference, Clayworth said, stunned. More of a passage, really. Goes on for pages. I have to go into the vault for it. Vault? Oh, yes. This establishment is built on the ruins of a Roman sewer. Once drained, I'll have an enormous amount of storage below, but that is a future plan for us. As it stands now, it's just a tiny area beneath our feet. Shan't be a moment. Clayworth reached into his bag, retrieved his white archival gloves, and drew them on. True to his word, Source returned a moment later with a large volume in hand and set the book down in front of Clayworth. We've lost so much of the Indo-Celtic culture, Clayworth said. It didn't survive contact with Rome. What little we do know is mainly of Irish and Welsh extraction. That's what makes the Codex invaluable, Source replied as they turned, very carefully, the weathered, fragile pages. It offers us a glimpse into their world before Caesar intruded. Clayworth gave a nod on locating the passage, and he placed his finger at the confirmation he needed. My Greek is rusty, but the disc appears to be a representation of an aspect of the Elder Gods. Potato, potato, Source replied. You know as well as I that translations can vary, and Lords of Chaos sounds ever so dramatic, does it not? He leaned in for a closer look, placing the rubbing by the ancient text for comparison. See here, this rune. I believe in this context it means ward. Ward? Or where? Clayworth replied, looking over the professor's shoulder. Hmm, hard to say, but this next one means water. Ward water? Clayworth asked. Where the water? Source returned. Clayworth's eyes jumped from the book to Source's eyes. Are you certain? Where the water? Oh, yes, the professor answered, his attention still on the ancient text. And the ward rune appears three more times. Tell me, how did it feel holding the disc? Like I had a beehive in my brain, with the attendant buzzing and stinging. 
Indeed, Source said. That disk is a seal to prevent entry. Look to line four. Where the dirt? Earth? Where the land, Clayworth said, his face sobering. Here, on line eight, where the sun, or fire. Where the sun fire, Source said. In that context, line twelve isn't where the air, it becomes where the ether. The context appears fluid, Clayworth said. This seal serves as a ward by binding the classical elements of matter to repel something. And if these seals are destroyed, that spell is broken. The question remains, Source began as he gently closed the book and then tapped the etching of the cephalopod monster. Exactly. What are these seals trying to repel? Clayworth put his head down, cradling it in his arms. It had been an exciting and exhausting day. He closed his eyes. Beloved, help me! Madeline screamed, her voice clear as if she were with him in Miggins' antiquities. Beloved, help me! His head snapped up, his face pale, and he raced from the room, leaving his cane and bag behind. Clayworth paid the handsome driver and leapt up the steps to the Etheret Consortium. He drew back a gloved hand to pound on the door, and his arm was caught fast. He spun, wrenching it free to face Peter Atkins. Don't go announcing all presents. Sergeant Major Atkins? Clayworth asked. Scotland Yards had their eye on the Dales for a while, and we were hoping to hear from the lady of the house today. He shrugged. Seeing as the lady still hasn't called upon us, we thought of paying another visit. Atkins pushed at the door. It swung open. After you! Broken furniture and papers littered the area. A slight breeze stirred a strong odor of coal oil. Where do we start? Clayworth asked. In Lord Dale's office? In the basement? Smell those fumes? They're heavier than air. No, if they're down there, they're already dead. Clayworth thought for a moment. The consortium's library. It's secure, but has ready access to the outside. They reached the library in short order. A gurgling scream rippled from behind the door. Clayworth frantically tried the handle. The door did not budge. Step back, Atkins said, and kicked the door in. Wood splintered. Atkins went in first, motioning Clayworth behind him. The reek of coal oil permeated the air. Dale was at the far end of the room by the fountain. Behind him, a bookcase swung away from the wall, revealing a stone-lined doorway framing a narrow, dead-end corridor with a series of copper arches mounted near the ceiling. The arches terminated in carboils of bubbling, noxious liquid that shone with a faint green glow. Eldrick discharges flickered between the arches. The entire assembly appeared to be driven from a brass panel sitting atop a small steam engine near the entrance. The brass panel had one slot, currently empty, and a corresponding lever. In his good hand, Dale clutched the small wooden box. The brass hand held Madeline's head under the water of the fountain. She was not moving. Atkins drew a four-barreled revolver from under his coat. Its gauges, Clayworth could see, were all in the green, and aimed at Dale. Let the woman go! On royal warrant from the Queen, I am placing you under arrest! Dale released Madeline, and she slid from the fountain onto the floor. He then sparked a device in his brass hand, producing a flickering gout of flame. Drop the pistol! I will not ask a second time! Atkins thumbed the pistol's hammer, the click thundering in Clayworth's ears. Then don't. Madeline? 
Clayworth said. She lay still. He could not tell if she was breathing or not. Lord Dale, what are you doing? All this and more could have been yours had you kept your place. Dale answered. The etheric ansible is the result of ancient knowledge coupled with modern genius. How does one explain imprinting a location sympathetic resonance onto a luminiferous amatolic key? Suffice it to say, it is how I ordered a gunboat attack on Canton, and how I know they're firing on the Chinese as we speak. Why? Clayworth cried. Tea, opium, embargoes, this free trade nonsense? Pa! Bread and circuses, my boy. A way to appease the people while necessary work gets done. I invited you into our select group of illuminated intellects, but you just could not let go of your bourgeois tendencies. True power is the province of the elite few, and can only be maintained by distracting the unwashed masses. He checked his pocket watch and looked at Madeline. Since you wouldn't leave this lover, you die with him. The whip-cracked discharge of Atkins' sidearm shocked Clayworth. Dale cried out and stumbled, accidentally firing the bookcase with his brass hand. He clutched his ocular with the other. The fire, within seconds of touching the books, spread rapidly up the bookcase. Clayworth rushed to Madeline's side. She was not breathing. You have killed her, he cried. Dale merely growled in reply, his hand tearing away the ruin of the optic device and revealing to Clayworth another deception. The Lord's once-covered eye appeared intact, but it was a solid, inky color. Atkins fired off five more rounds, each striking Dale, Stygian blood spraying from the wounds. Dale roared with each impact, the timbre of his voice deepening and echoing. He surveyed the room, seeming to notice it for the first time, and spied the controls. Ugh. Home. Clayworth cradled Madeline's head in his lap and stroked her hair, grief pouring from his eyes. Dale stumbled to the brass panel, flipped open the small wooden box holding the mysterious disc, and shoved the artifact into the slot. His blood-soaked hand pulled hard against the lever. The flywheel on the steam engine spun, and the discharges in the arches became more pronounced. Insistent humming filled the air. Atkins charged Dale, slamming the man into the stonework of the doorway. He trapped the shattered prosthetic in a one-arm lock and rained blows on Dale's head with his other arm. Dale jerked away, the brasswork tearing free of his body as the leather straps securing it failed. The prosthetic fell free. Dale's right arm appeared normal from the shoulder to the elbow. At the elbow, it erupted into a mass of tentacles. At last! Dale bellowed and backhanded Atkins, the whip action of the tentacles sending him crashing into the flaming bookcase at the far wall. The humming increased in pitch, and the copper arches discharged into a single point in the middle of the corridor. The ball of iridescence grew, constrained only by the copper. One of Dale's tentacles wrapped around Clayworth's neck, lifting him from the floor. Another dipped into his waistcoat, pulling out a long, slender dagger. One more minute, human! The thing that was Dale said, stepping towards the glow, his tentacles tightening. Why? Clayworth croaked, beginning to see black spots in front of his eyes. You crave order, don't you, insect? It sneered. You believe it is the natural way of things. It is not. Order has to be imposed. Chaos reigns. The tentacles cut deeper into Clayworth's neck. He placed his feet on either side of the doorway and, using his remaining strength, pushed away from his captor, dragging it away from the glow. It snarled and yanked Clayworth into the corridor. Clayworth felt the dagger begin to slice into his chest. 
His vision went black, and he flailed, grasping for anything that could pull him from oblivion. He could feel the cold steel prick his heart. His right hand struck something, and he grabbed it and yanked with all his waning strength. The humming abruptly stopped, and he heard a terrible, wailing scream. Clayworth wanted to open his eyes, but it was too great an effort. He attempted a deep breath instead. Stabbing pains in his chest caused him to slump over on his side, coughing. Someone calmed him, speaking gentle words and holding his hand. He hoped it wasn't Atkins. He smelled roses and pried his eyes open to look into Madeline's sun-kissed face. A "'Am I dead?' he asked. "'No, silly boy, and neither am I. "'I saw Lord Dale kill you.' "'Beloved, you saw what was necessary,' she sighed. Clayworth smiled. "'What happened?' Roderick stabbed you in the heart just as you pulled the disc from the control console. He was in a state of transtemporal portation. You slammed a metaphysical gate on him. Is he dead? I don't know. If he's lucky, he is. Otherwise, he is in the outer dark. Clayworth shifted, trying to find a more comfortable position. How long have I been here? Three days, Madeline replied. Clayworth was silent for a moment. I don't understand how you and I survived. You were dead. Who? What are you? She smiled, her eyes warm, and she took his hand in hers. Beloved, as you have probably surmised by now, I'm not quite Madeline. The story that Roderick told you was true, but it was his discovery and Madeline's plight that provided me an opportunity. The seal is part of a gateway to the outer dark. That gateway can only be opened by force of will and a blood sacrifice. Destroying all of the seals would destroy the gateway, but when one of the discs is destroyed, the gateway weakens just enough to allow those from the outer dark through. On the night Roderick spoke of, an elder god found its way through and started devouring Roderick's soul. You were guarding this seal? Clayworth asked. In a manner of speaking, her smile, when he had seen it in the past, always made his heart stop with joy. This time, he wanted to scream in terror. You recall the night of the dinner when I touched you with my ring? It felt like my brain was cauterized. Roderick tried to imprint the seal on you. The outer dark chooses that path to spread chaos like an infection. Well, I couldn't have that, so I drove the influence out. I have a need for you. A need for me? Clayworth asked. Yes, to fulfill my wishes, much like young Edward, she said, but then her expression fell. And poor William, perhaps I should have let him have his way with me. Her eyes darkened as she looked at Clayworth. As I did with you. So it was you, he whispered. You had Lord Russell killed? China. Of all the desires to deny me, Lord Russell chooses China. Does that make any sense to you? She sighed. Money is power, beloved. The Chinese were blocking the import of opium. The war was unfortunate, but I needed to distract anyone who might stop me. She leaned over and kissed him on the nose. With trade restored, my interest in the East India Company is once again profitable. I have money, power, and dreams. What more could any girl ask? Clayworth said nothing. 
then. So what is my purpose in all this? Beloved, she began, the night Roderick and Madeline lost their lives, a seal was destroyed, the earth seal, causing that unfortunate calamity. It was mere happenstance that the water seal, my seal, was also present. Her laughter sparkled, sending a chill up his spine. And you answered my call and destroyed another seal. She kissed his lips. It gave him no comfort at all. Only two remain, she whispered in his ear, and you are going to find them for me. Clayworth woke with a start, the sudden tensing of his muscles causing the hospital bed to bounce up and down. His fists were clenched in the bedsheets, and he was sweating. A nurse pulled back the privacy curtain and smiled. Well, now you're awake, and you have a visitor. Clayworth's stomach clenched, but he felt his heart beat slow a pace at the sight of Professor Culpepper's source. Excellent, my boy! You pulled through! Was there a doubt? Well, I passed a priest to get here, if you must know. His throat tightened for a moment. Then he suddenly recalled, Professor, there is a plot to assassinate the Queen. Yes, we know. Group of radicals called Young England. Some poor addle-brained chap named Edward Oxford. Clayworth paused. That was impressive, coming from the head of an antique store. How did you... Well, my boy, you dashed off without so much as a thank you for the tea, and you left behind the rubbing. What I managed to crack using the codex allowed me to look for clues that led me to these young England chaps. I notified the Queen and family. They are all well. Had he heard the professor correctly? Wait, you notified the Queen? It is my job to notify the Queen of such matters, like that elemental seal you brought to me. Did you manage to rescue it from the consortium? No, it was destroyed. Can't let that happen again now, can we? You're an antique stealer, Clayworth suddenly snapped. How are you able to just call upon the Queen? Source looked over his shoulder to the nurse. The privacy curtain was drawn once more. Mr. Clayworth, he began, I serve at the behest of Her Majesty to investigate peculiar occurrences considered too strange or bizarre for Scotland Yard. Clayworth raised an eyebrow. The Queen appointed you director of a ministry that operates out of an antique shop. Which ministry is that? Source waved his hand and continued. Considering your work for this consortium, your research in this elemental disc, and that brilliant thesis of yours, I have shared over these past few days a correspondence with Her Majesty and Oxford concerning your degree and letters. He placed a hand on Clayworth's shoulder. May I be the first to say congratulations, Dr. Clayworth? Was this all really happening, or was he still asleep? This was ridiculous. Thank you? You have earned it, my boy, Source beamed. And I have a job opportunity for you. An archivist's posting is opened, and I believe you are uniquely suited for the position. Clayworth looked in Askins and finally nodded. It was then... He smelled roses. Paul Ellis is an avid reader and chronic procrastinator. 
He bides his time producing and voicing podcasts for MythBehaving.com, City News Net, and the Dark Justice Podcast. He has taken a turn at the Roundtable Podcast, written a nifty short story about a detective's run-in with a bunch of Celtic gods in 1950s Los Angeles in the Dirty Magic LA Anthology, and plans a run at the presidency. That last part isn't true. However, he and his wife are raising three lovely daughters in Central Virginia, and he is presently completing the sequel to the aforementioned story. When not otherwise engaged, he lurks on Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally at his own site, paulkellis.com. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Dawn's Early Light, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print and digital formats. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.